Mark 11, 1 to 11, the well-known story of Jesus' so-called triumphal entry into Jerusalem. I'd like to start with a question. And that is, if you had gone off and done something great and you were coming home and your community wanted to honor you and to celebrate with you, what kind of homecoming would you want? What kind of music would you want played? What kind of festivities and decorations? I asked my family this question at dinner a few nights ago, and they had ideas like bubbles, or riding on a horse, or uh, ticker tape, or the Darth Vader march. Kind of scary, I know. (laughs) I wonder what that great thing was that that particular child of mine (laughs) wanted to be honored for. Well, what would you choose? Why don't you turn to someone near you and just mention one thing that you might like to have at your homecoming celebration. Go ahead. Okay. Well, societies have always found ways of honoring those who come home victorious. We do it today, whether it's our servicemen who come home from foreign service, from war, whether it's the Yankees coming home with the World Series victory. There are parades, there are brass bands, there's ticker tape, there are celebrity performances, champagne, maybe the key to the city. And this was true in ancient times too. It was particularly true of kings who had won some great victory. It was true of a king who had gone off to war and had won a, a significant battle and who had come home with the captives and the spoils of war. It was also true of a king who had come and conquered your territory and, and now was coming to your city as your new ruler. And when such a king entered a city in victory, he was always welcomed in royal fashion with great celebration, even if you didn't really want him as your king. And we have many examples of such entrances from the ancient history books, entrances of the Caesars, of Alexander the Great, of Simon and Judas Maccabeus, just to name a few. And if you read the descriptions of these entrances, you'll find that they all have a number of elements in common. Let me mention four elements. First, these entries would be planned. This wouldn't be something spontaneous, oh, they're home and they come marching in. No, it would be planned out. It would be carefully choreographed to appropriately celebrate the king's victory and rule. Second, the people of the city, and particularly all the VIPs of the city, would be sure to be on hand to meet, go out and meet the new king. And the people would joyously welcome him with shouts and with singing and with music and with dancing, often offering praises and prayers to their gods in the process. Third, as the king and his entourage marched into the city, their procession would utilize some sort of symbol of victory. Chariots or battle axes or garlands or palm branches or spoils of war and prisoners of war. And fourth, finally, the leading people of the city would accompany the king to the city's chief temple. And there the king would be invited to offer sacrifices to the gods of the city. Often there would be then a celebratory meal with the who's who of the city. Now, many scholars believe that these ancient entry processions were styled after a pattern that you find in the ancient myths. People were extremely religious back then, 
And um, in these myths, a powerful god would go off and would fight a cosmic battle, often against the forces of chaos. And after winning the battle, this god would come and would build his temple and would hold a banquet and would then begin his reign. That's what you found in these myths. Notice the pattern. Victory in battle, a march home, building a temple, and a glorious reign. Let's keep all that background in mind as we look at Jesus' triumphal entry in Mark 11. All right, so now let's try to put ourselves back into the scene that day as Jesus entered Jerusalem. Imagine what it must have been like to have been there. Three times per year, the Jews who lived in Israel had a major vacation. Uh, Let's see, a Christmas, spring break, and summer vacation. No. Um, For them, it was Passover, first fruits, and tabernacles. And during these three great feasts, you got off work, you shut down your business, uh, life ground to a halt, you packed up your suitcase, and you headed to Jerusalem to a big party. And along the way, as these people would travel together with family, with relatives, with neighbors and friends and many other fellow pilgrims, their anticipation grew uh, of the celebration that lay ahead. They were heading to to God's city, into God's presence, where they would remember and celebrate together what God had done for them. And as they drew close and their weary foot journey was nearly behind them and the big city and all the celebrations were right before them, they would begin to sing. And what they would sing would be the Egyptian Hallel Psalms, Psalms 113 to 118. And these were songs through which they joyously praised God, remembering all that God had done for them in the past. The Lord had won them a great victory over Egypt, they would remember, leading them out of Egypt to freedom. And and the Lord had brought them through the desert and into the promised land when, when God or where God eventually had his temple built through King Solomon. And then God reigned over his kingdom through King David and his dynasty, which followed. And the pilgrims would remember all this and they would celebrate the privilege and the joy that they had at being able to come once again to God's holy city, into God's presence at the temple, into the royal city of of God's Davidic kings where they ruled. And this is where we find Jesus and his disciples in the story we read this morning. They've just climbed the dusty road from Jericho to Jerusalem, a 12-mile haul with a rise in elevation of almost 4,000 feet through a parched and barren desert. And they've crested the last hill, the um, Mount of Olives near Bethany. And suddenly there, the terrain changes. And a grand panorama unfolds before them, green with vegetation, and even better, a view of Jerusalem, the goal itself. And they're singing and they're celebrating. But but this year, at this feast, for some of the pilgrims, their celebration is about to take on a whole new significance. To understand just how significant, let's pause for a minute and let's reflect back on the ministry of Jesus, the life of Jesus up to this point in time. If you go back and you read the first part of the story of Jesus in Mark 1 to 8, you'll hear how Jesus came into Galilee and the power of the Holy Spirit proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand. How Jesus cast out demons, forgave sins, set the captives free, healed the lame, the blind, the deaf. How he calmed the storm, how he taught with authority. In other words, 
as God did for his people so many years before when he brought them out of Egypt, so again, through Jesus, God had won a great victory and had set his people free. And then in chapters 8 to 10 of Mark, which we looked at some of that a few months ago, Jesus had led the redeemed, those who were blind and who had needed a second touch, he led them along the way of the new exodus. Remember, that's the way section of Mark, the way of holiness, the way of new exodus. And God, uh, Jesus began leading them back to God's presence in Jerusalem. And now they're finally about to arrive. And they're ready to enter into Jerusalem, God's city, the royal city with its centerpiece, the temple. And Jesus has along the way demonstrated to his disciples that he's the victorious king, the Messiah. And just before Mark 11, where we are now, in the very last story of Mark 10, a very symbolic story, a blind man has called Jesus by a royal messianic title, Son of David. And Jesus has opened his eyes, and this man has followed Jesus along the way into Jerusalem. And so we're at the climax of the story now, and Jesus and the pilgrims with him are, are cresting the Mount of Olives. They're, they're beginning their final approach to the city, this trip to Jerusalem. And, and right now, it takes on a whole new significance. Jesus, the victorious king, is going to enter his city. This is more than just any other pilgrim trip to Jerusalem. But not surprisingly with Jesus, there's some surprises. And I see two major surprises in the story here in Mark 11. We'll look at the first one now. We'll look at the other one when we get to verse 11. So the first surprise is this scene in verses 1 to 6. Jesus tells two of his disciples to go to a nearby village where they'll find a colt tied in the street. They're to untie it and to bring it. And if anyone stops them, they're to say the Lord needs it. And so they go, they, they find the colt, they untie it, and sure enough, the people standing there ask what they're doing, and they tell them what Jesus told them to say, and the people let them go. Now, why tell all that? I mean, why not just start with verse 7 and say, they brought a colt to Jesus and he rode on it? Why tell this detailed story about how they got the colt? Well, I think there's three reasons for it. First, by telling this story, Jesus lets us know, or I'm sorry, Mark lets us know that Jesus commandeered this beast, that, that um, he commandeers it. And to commandeer an animal was the prerogative only of a king to command some private citizen's property for, or to commandeer it for royal use. Second, by telling this story, Mark has a chance to allude to a prophecy. Back in Genesis 49, 10 to 11, when Jacob, the father of God's people, was blessing his 12 sons, from whom came the 12 tribes of Israel, Jacob prophesied of his son Judah, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch." Did you catch that? You will find a colt tied there. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. And now this prophecy comes true in him as he rides the tethered colt. Third, this story shows that Jesus carefully planned this entry. Now, I used to think that this story about going off and finding the, the colt somehow 
showed Jesus miraculous foreknowledge, that, that Jesus just knew somehow that there was a cult tied somewhere over there in that village, and he somehow knew that if his disciples went and got it and said the Lord needs it, that the owners would let it go. I mean, Jesus is always doing miraculous stuff, right? That, that would be no surprise. But, but a number of interpreters have convinced me that that's not what's going on here. But rather that Jesus arranged to use this cult ahead of time. That he had some friends in that village and he made arrangements to borrow their cult. And he worked out a password with them so that the ones who lent it would, or the ones he sent to retrieve it would be allowed to retrieve it. Now this is very cloak and dagger if this is what's going on. Why send two disciples? Why the elaborate instructions? Why a password? Well, I think it's because to enter Jerusalem the way Jesus was about to do could get you killed by the Romans. And as it turns out, by the Jewish leaders too. Jesus wanted to spare those from danger who could be later found guilty by association. The owners of the cult and the ones who went to retrieve it. So Jesus does all of this secretly, but deliberately. The point is that like all royal victorious entries, Jesus planned this out ahead of time, very carefully, very secretly, to protect the innocent. There are other evidences, too, that this was a royal entry. For one thing, there's good evidence that all pilgrims to Jerusalem were expected to enter the city on foot. It was perhaps a sign of humility as you entered God's holy city. But Jesus enters here riding on a mount, as only a king would do. And like a king, Jesus rides a mount which has never been ridden by anyone else. A king generally would ride an animal that no one had ever else had ridden. For another thing, Jesus', Jesus is riding this cult alludes to Zechariah 9.9. 9. Another prophecy. Now Mark doesn't quote this prophecy like Matthew and Luke do, but the word cult is probably enough to clue people in who knew this prophecy well. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This passage in Zechariah foretells the time when God, through his messianic king, would come and reign over all, and there would finally be peace on earth. And he comes riding on a colt. All along in Mark's gospel, Jesus has been trying to keep his identity as God's Messiah, God's king, a secret, but no longer. Now Jesus is deliberately orchestrating his royal entry as king to celebrate his victory. And so we see that this, the, the joyous pilgrims who are here with Jesus now have an even greater reason to celebrate. So they throw their garments on the ground like you would do for, for a king to create a red carpet, so to speak. And they go and they cut branches from the fields and they lay those down as well. And the people sing Psalm 118, the last of the pilgrim songs that pilgrims always sang as they journeyed to Jerusalem. This psalm was probably sung antiphonally back and forth between groups of people. It was a Thanksgiving psalm and it was written to be sung as you were coming to the temple to celebrate a victory that God had given you. It describes a king or a, a military commander who against all odds won the battle with God's help. 
And Mark records the crowd shouting verse 25 and 26 of the psalm, Hosanna, which means save. And blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is how those at the temple would welcome the one coming to the temple in victory to offer thanks to God. But notice then these two lines are repeated in reverse order, and this time they're applied to Jesus as king. First, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. That's what Jesus is bringing. He's bringing God's royal Davidic kingdom. And then Hosanna in the highest, which is probably an appeal to God who dwells in the highest to to save his people, even as Jesus is marching into the city. And so this crowd has transformed from a mere group of pilgrims praising God as they approach Jerusalem to a group of subjects welcoming the rightful king into his royal city as God's victorious conqueror and savior. But then we have our second surprise. Notice there's no mention of the people of Jerusalem here joining in this celebration, at least the way Mark tells the story. There there are no VIPs from Jerusalem here to welcome Jesus. There's, uh, sorry, those celebrating and, and singing Hosanna are the pilgrims who are traveling with Jesus into the city from Jericho. They're the people of Galilee, most likely, where uh, Jesus has won the victory, where he's proclaimed the kingdom, where he's healed the sick, where he's cast out demons. These are the ones who he set free. They're the the blind ones who can now see. And, and, And Jesus is leading them now back into God's presence along the way of the new exodus. But what about the people of the city? Where are they? And look what happens when Jesus gets into the city. Just like we'd expect, Jesus goes straight to the temple. But instead of a sacrifice taking place, Mark tells us, Jesus looks around, but since it was already late, he leaves the city, and that's the end of the story. Joltingly anticlimactic. Now, I'm convinced that when Mark says it was already late, he's saying more than just that it was almost closing time for the day at the temple. I think he's also saying that the hour had grown late in Jerusalem's history for them to receive the salvation that God was even then offering them. It was almost closing time for the temple, all right, but not just for the day, but rather permanently. The king, the the victorious king had come to Jerusalem, but they didn't come out to meet him. They didn't welcome him with songs or prayers or praises. They didn't send their leading men out to greet him. They didn't let him offer sacrifices in the temple. In fact, as you'll see, if you keep reading Mark 11, the temple was corrupt and defiled. It wasn't even fit for sacrifice. So Jesus winds up judging it. The hour was late. And so after Jesus looked around at all these things, he just left the city. And I find that ending almost haunting. Knowing what we know about the way ancient royal entries were supposed to happen, all climaxing in the temple. And here when Jesus gets to the temple, nothing happens. Jesus looks around, but it's like no one notices he's there. The place makes no response. There's stony silence. As if the city's blind or deaf or asleep or dead. 
It makes you wonder if triumphal entry is actually the wrong title for this story, which is why a number of interpreters have suggested it's actually the atriumphal entry. Okay, now how does all this relate to us today? Well, this passage presses two questions on us. Who do you say Jesus is? And what is your response to him? First, who do you say Jesus is? Is he just a nice, good man? Is he a great spiritual guide? Is he a miracle worker, maybe some sort of ancient superhero? Is he a spiritual best friend, as in the words of the Depeche Mode song, your own personal Jesus? Someone who hears your prayers? Someone who cares? Is Jesus a personal savior, someone who goes around and hands out get out of jail or get out of hell free cards to anyone who will take one? Or is Jesus all of that and much, much more? Is Jesus first and foremost who he claims to be by his actions outside the gates of Jerusalem that day? Is he a great victorious king? And not just any king, but the son of David from the tribe of Judah, whom God had promised he would one day send to, into the world to rescue his people, and not only his people, but the whole world. To save us from all that captivates us, to open our spiritual eyes so that we can see clearly, to, to make us whole again, to, to bring us back into God's presence. And there to rule in such a way as to put this broken world back together again. Who is Jesus? That's the first question that I think this story presses upon us. The second question is then, what is our response to him? Is our response more like that of the worshipers who throw down their cloaks for him to ride on, who celebrate his, his rule and victory with hosannas? Or is our response more like the city of Jerusalem, busily going about its business, very religious, but too preoccupied to, to notice or to care who it was who visited them that day and who by the end of the week put their king to death? What if Jesus visited us? What if Jesus has visited us and we haven't taken time to notice? In his book, Ghost Soldiers, Hampton Sides tells the story of a dramatic rescue mission during World War II. On January 28, 1945, a special force of army rangers slipped behind enemy lines in the Philippines to rescue 513 American and British POWs. These prisoners had spent three years in a hellish prison camp near the city of Abinatuan. And Sides describes the first effects of liberation as the rangers broke into this camp. These effects were chaos and fear. The prisoners were too mentally brittle to understand what was taking place. Some of them even scurried away from their liberators. One particular prisoner, Bert Bank, refused to budge even when a ranger walked right up to him and tugged his arm. Come on, he said, we're here to save you. Run for the gate. But, but Banks wouldn't move. The ranger looked into his eyes and, and he saw that they were vacant. They were registering nothing. What's wrong with you, he said. Don't you want to be free? And then a smile formed on Banks' 
lips as the meaning of the words became clear and he reached up to the outstretched hand of the ranger. The rangers searched all of the barracks for additional prisoners and then they shouted, the Americans are leaving, is anyone else here? And hearing no answer, they left. But there was one more POW, Edwin Rose. Edwin had been on latrine duty and he'd somehow missed all the shooting and the explosions. And when he wandered back into his barracks, he failed to notice that the room was empty and he lay down on his straw mat and he fell asleep. Edwin had missed the liberation. But there was a reason why. Edwin was deaf. Meanwhile, the freed prisoners marched 25 miles toward their ship home. And with each step, their stunned disbelief gave way to soaring optimism. And in the end, even Edwin Rose made it. He finally woke up and he realized that liberation had come. What about us? Have we woken up? Have we woken to all of who Jesus really is and to all that it means that he has come to us as our victorious king? You know, you can be asleep in church even though your eyes are open. <laughs> That's a new thought. <laughs> You can be singing the songs every Sunday, but have little awareness of who Jesus really is. I once heard a, a striking statement. It was that worship is a political act. Worship is a political act. And over the years, I've come to realize more and more how true this is. It was true on that first Palm Sunday to sing Hosanna in the highest and blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David while Jesus was riding into Jerusalem mounted on a colt could be viewed as an act of sedition and rebellion against Rome. And it was likely one of the main reasons that when the Romans crucified Jesus, they crucified him as king of the Jews. That worship is a political act was also true of the early followers of Jesus to whom Mark was writing, most likely the uh, citizens of Rome in the mid-first century. They lived in a world where to confess Jesus is Lord, Yesu Kurios, in a world which confessed Caesar is Lord, Kaiser Kurios, was to risk being labeled a traitor against the emperor. Worship was and is a political act. Because Jesus really claims to be this world's true and rightful king. So here's the real worship question. Not what style of music do you prefer, but who really has your allegiance? Is your allegiance only to yourself? To your own immediate family? To your safety and security? to your own comfort and your wishes and your wants? Or is your allegiance to a certain political party who promises that they know best how to secure our borders and our financial future? Or is your allegiance to your employer or to your career or vocation because that's where your true identity lies and, and you're desperate to maintain the standard of living to which you've grown accustomed? Or is your allegiance to the economic system 
to keeping America prosperous and to keeping your investments growing. And, and so you do your part to stimulate the economy by buying everything you want and need. And you support policies which are good for the economy, good for the bottom line, even if local communities and, and God's creatures are sacrificed along the way. Or is your allegiance to church? And so you push for your preferences because you, you want to keep your religious world safe and comfortable because it's your only haven against the threatening world out there. To whom or to what is your, is my true allegiance? Jesus comes to us this morning, this Palm Sunday, pressing his claim to be our king. How will we respond? Will we join in worshiping him? Or will we, like Jerusalem, respond in stony silence? Last week, Greg Howe encouraged us to take a stone and to use it to prepare for Easter by meditating on what our sins are, which are like boulders on the road standing in the way of Jesus' coming to us. And today I encourage you to take this palm frond as well and to let it help you prepare this week. Let it remind you that worship is a political act. Let it remind you about this story and the questions it raises. Who really is Jesus and what is your response to him? And we invite you next Sunday, on Easter Sunday, to bring back your rocks and to bring back your palms. And uh, Rachel will lead us in a worship exercise where we use them to respond to Jesus our King. Let's pray. Jesus, every Palm Sunday and so many days in between, you confront us with who you really are and we realize there's more work to be done in our hearts, in our lives, if we are really going to give you our allegiance and praise you as our victorious king. Thank you that you came. You came not as the kind of king anyone really expected, not as a great military conqueror, but you came as a humble king who by the end of the week, as we'll remember on Friday, Lay down your life for your enemies as the only way not to conquer them, but to make peace and to reconcile them to yourself. God, bring that home to our hearts again. And help us to see how wonderful of a king Jesus is and that the best decision we can make is to give our allegiance wholeheartedly to him. In Jesus' name, amen.